Hello, and welcome to the Elizabeth Holmes episode of Slate Money Criminals. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and Slate and other places. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And to talk about Elizabeth Holmes, the woman who did an entire podcast on her, Rebecca Jarvis. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here with you guys. Introduce yourself and plug your podcast. So I'm the host and creator of the Dropout Podcast, chronicling the rise and fall of Elizabeth Holmes. And we have two seasons. The first one goes over the story and the second follows the entire trial real time. So you'll hear everything that went down in the courtroom. We are going to try and answer the question of how bad of a criminal was Elizabeth Holmes? What did she do that was bad? Did she get her just desserts? We're going to talk about who the victims were, what was going through her head, what was going on with her co-conspirator, Sonny Balwani. And at the end, we're going to try and place her on a scale of like one to Madoff. Was she worse than Madoff? Better? It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so, Rebecca, this is Slate Money Criminals. This is the only episode of Slate Money Criminals about someone who's actually in jail at the time we record the show. Um, Or in prison, I should say, because she's been convicted. She's serving an 11-year sentence. Um, Tell us, what was Elizabeth Holmes convicted of, and was it a terrible crime? Well... I guess it really depends on who you ask, whether it was a terrible crime or not. Um, According to the law, it was a serious crime because it involved multi-billion dollars worth of criminal fraud. And while there were many counts against her, the counts that she was found guilty on were those involving investors. So the crimes she committed in defrauding investors. There were also counts at her trial about the crimes committed against patients. And while there were many patients that we heard from at trial, people who were misinformed about their health because of inaccurate Theranos tests, things like uh, a woman who thought she had a miscarriage uh, because of a Theranos test, someone who thought she had AIDS because of a Theranos test, a gentleman who thought he had cancer. Um, And I also spoke to a number of people over the course of our reporting of people who received these inaccurate tests because they went into a Walgreens or in some cases they even got a test from a doctor and they were misinformed about their health. So a lot of people would say that's really the stakes here that not only did investors lose money um, and many of those investors are, are names people might know like Betsy DeVos and Rupert Murdoch, but the real losers in all of this were the people whose healthcare information Uh, that were misinformed and had to live with those decisions in some cases may have even taken medications or put themselves at greater health risk because of it. The interesting thing you just said there is that the kind of morally horrifying thing that she did or that she was accused of doing in terms of effect, you know, basically recklessly going into Walgreens and giving people test results that were just fictitious... She was actually found not guilty of that. 
Yeah. And and the thing is, I talked to a lot of legal experts even before the verdict came out, and that would have been a much harder crime to prove. And part of that is that it has to do, it's not a malpractice lawsuit. This was never a malpractice lawsuit. It was about following the money and an intention to commit a crime. So it was much clearer that she intended to defraud investors because they gave her money when her business was not doing the things she claimed that it was doing than it was to draw a line between herself and the financing and what the patients ultimately paid for in those Theranos tests. Is that not what a lot of startup founders do? I mean, they exaggerate their company and what it can do and their technology and what it can do in order to get money from investors? I mean, what makes Elizabeth Holmes so much worse that she had to go to prison for 11 years for that? Well, I do think that the attention that was paid to this trial has to do with the stakes of it, that Mm -hmm. lives were at stake. And this wasn't purely a case of how many users does this company have, although we are starting to see more cases also like that and and questions about whether or not what a company says is true is accurate. And I, you know, we can sort of debate why that is. Maybe it's because money is no longer free and now companies are actually looking Mm. at where they're putting that money when the Fed no longer has 0% interest rates. But a lot of companies, you could say, um, they put their best face forward. But there's a real difference between putting your very best face forward and completely lying. And one of the things that I thought at trial was a real smoking gun was this idea that Theranos put forward these reports to investors that looked like they came from pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer. And in fact, they didn't. They were provided and created by Theranos. And Elizabeth Holmes herself is the one who put the logos of companies like Pfizer at the top so that investors would think, oh, this is Pfizer's stamp of approval when in fact it wasn't. That's bad. But like, it's not as bad as, again, in the eyes of the law, her partner in crime, quite literally, Sonny Balwani, he got an even harsher sentence than she did. He did. And you could argue that he was a less sympathetic person at trial, given that he had started other companies in the past, that he had worked for a much longer time. He was older. The entire so he, he basically should have known better. And she founded this company when she was 19 and basically argued, like, I've never done this before. I didn't realize this was wrong. Certainly. I mean, that was the case that they made at trial for her, uh, that she didn't know she was taking the advice of all the people surrounding her, including Sonny Belwani. And so there was some sympathy. We spoke to a number of the jurors, and the jurors, while they felt that she was guilty, none of them took pleasure in deciding that guilt. Did you talk to any of the jurors in the Sonny Belwani case? We didn't follow his trial as closely. Um, You know, from a legal standpoint, he is in jail for a slightly longer period of time. He was sentenced to a slightly longer period of time. But from a legal standpoint, it doesn't make that much of a difference whether the two of them were convicted of one, two, three, however many counts that each of them were convicted of. I think it's interesting that their trials were severed uh, and that she 
maybe in some respects made herself more sympathetic by having her own trial as opposed to the two of them being tried together. Can I just come back quickly, though, to the counts that she was found not guilty of? You said Mm -hmm. this wasn't a malpractice trial. So what was she accused? What was the crime that she was accused of there? It had to do with advertisements. So was a paid by Theranos advertisement an accurate representation of what she knew at the time of the product and service that they were offering a patient. Oh, okay, so, so this was a, like, she, it was a false advertising thing rather than essentially, that you caused I mean, harm to these that's, individuals. That's thing. a component of it. So was she misinforming people with the intent to misinform them to get them to pay money for a Theranos test through fraud? And that's where the jury found her not guilty. That's right. And and I again, from a legal standpoint, you can draw a line between Elizabeth Holmes and investors. She met with investors all the time. She's the one who approved communications and documents that went directly to investors. With patients, it's just a less clear picture, legally speaking. You know, when you look at her personal and professional arc, do you think that she set out from the beginning in a sort of state of mind where she was willing to commit fraud to make this work? Or is it something more of an issue where she sort of painted herself into the corner when it became clear that the product just wasn't working? I mean, it seems from the trial that there was a good faith effort put in in the early years to do something that people like Phyllis Gardner at Stanford University thought was impossible. And... Elizabeth Holmes didn't graduate. She left college with almost no study underneath her. And then she set out to do this impossible thing. And she surrounded herself with some some really excellent scientists who worked at the company, but a board that had no real science background. And so she was trying to carry out this incredibly audacious goal with very little experience on her own. And things started to just not work out. And you can see how, and the entire case the government brought was this idea that every time the company was running short on money, she lied because she needed more money to keep it going. And that's where the lies began. When the money started to dry up, when she needed more investments, that's when the lies began. But also, if I look at someone who's founding a biotechnology startup and she winds up filling the board with a bunch of retired generals and people who know nothing about biotechnology. Like, on some level, there's a reason why she went for the generals and not the scientists, right? I mean, she kind of knew what she was doing even then. Well, you could look at it as nefarious, or you could look at it as a completely different understanding about power and money and where she was getting her money from. A lot of that later money, the later stage money, came from family offices of incredibly high net worth individuals. And this story, you know, people talk about the venture community giving her money, but really that high tech biotech venture community barely put money in. There was one investor. It was like, it was, was, it was Tim Draper, right? And that was about it. Right. Well, Tim Draper, Tim Draper was, you know, sort of her first investor, but there were very few individuals who really know biotech. And when you look at other kinds of biotech investments, usually you get really hardcore 
you know, PhD scientist type biotech VCs that take a really um, in-depth look. They're not betting on the person. They are betting on the work and the pedigree and all the things that have been accomplished by that product. Right. And the non-biotech VCs are fully aware of what they don't know when it comes to biotech. And they're like, I don't know biotech, so I don't invest in it. I leave that right. to the biotech VCs. Exactly. And a lot of, again, like a lot of the sort of traditional VC world that you hear about, they didn't put money in either. You're not saying that, and this is sort of my question coming in, Elizabeth Holmes didn't set out to be a fraud or to do a crime. She set out to 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 create this technology that was going to be groundbreaking. Like, she really thought that's what she was doing. She didn't come into this. On, on the series, we've talked about, you know, Bernie Madoff, who always, he kind of stumbled into it, too. But he, he knew pretty early on that he was just faking everything, total crime. Um, and all the criminals we've talked about knew what they were doing from the outset. They, they were doing a fraud. Like, it was pretty clear. But she came in, and it was different. So was there a turning point for Elizabeth Holmes where it was just like, where she knew this wasn't going to happen and she was just doing crime, you know, trying to get away with something. I don't know if you ever asked her and she was sitting in a lie detector that she really didn't believe it was going to happen. Mm. I think there's a difference between thinking something might happen or knowing something hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where this gray zone existed for her, where she was always selling the dream, but in many ways she was selling the dream as though it already occurred. Mm. And that is the corner she backed herself into. And a lot of it came back to running out of money. And it is expensive, by the way, to do this kind of work. So they did run out of money frequently. And and the first, when she originally brought even Sonny Belwani in in 2009, they had fully run out of money. This was the end of the Great Recession, the financial crisis. It was really hard to come by capital. And he came in with a big infusion. And then she brings him on as her partner. I guess we should talk about gender, right, when we're talking about Elizabeth Holmes. And I I don't even know where to start, to be honest with you. (laughs) One of the things that struck me along those lines was that, uh, you know, the story about her going to Phyllis Gardner and Gardner telling her uh, your idea for, you know, a patch that would deliver antibiotics just doesn't work. And she completely disregarded that. And she disregarded the advice of many professionals and experts who told her, and explained why, you know, her idea was bad. And I'm having trouble coming up with an analogous um, woman entrepreneur who's exhibited that kind of stubbornness in the face of expertise. I can think of several men. I mean, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, you know, always considered a little bit of an admirable Mm -hmm. trait when people like that buck what everyone tells them as conventional wisdom. But in her case, it just seems really unusual, and it seems like it might have been, you know, key to part of her downfall. She just deluded herself that these things were possible when they weren't. Um, How much do you think that played into what happened with her? I think if you, every entrepreneur, every entrepreneur, male, female, what have you, is going to tell you a story from their past where they were confronted by someone who didn't believe what they were doing is possible. I think there's a difference between having absolute faith in yourself, which you really have to have when you're an entrepreneur, and then outright lying and outright going down a path when you know that 
it's not working. Again, this idea that you're selling a dream as though it's already occurred. And I think that is what differentiates her. Um, I know female entrepreneurs who have been told to their face, they can't do what they're going to do and they end up doing it. And her story, if, if she had told the truth the whole way, could have been very different. We don't know what that outcome would have looked like, but it could have been a very different story where um, we would celebrate her. As some of the people you just mentioned, Elizabeth, we have celebrated those entrepreneurs because they were faced with the impossible and they somehow managed to overcome it. And yet the reason they managed to overcome it on some level was because they had the domain expertise to understand what was possible. And... In Elizabeth Holmes' example, you know, she dropped out of college after one year of undergrad. There, right, there was no, there even, was yeah. nothing. There was no re, there was no rational reason for her to believe that she understood the science here better than everyone who was telling her that she was wrong. I mean, even Absolutely. even someone like Martin Shkreli understood the biotechnology science much better than Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, and I think that's why I think in part. Phyllis Gardner at Stanford was so offended by the idea that Phyllis was sitting down the hall uh, from the most brilliant minds of our time and Elizabeth Holmes waltzed in and said, I'm going to do this and I'm just going to do it and I don't need to complete my degree here and I'm not going to do the hard work. I'm going to surround myself with names who will then bring in money and attention and I'm going to get attention, and that attention is going to propel money to just continue to flow in, and the it's all sizzle and no steak. And it worked until it didn't. Right, exactly. One of the things I've thought a lot about in my reporting is what was that moment like in Elizabeth's mind where she was so close in her head to really achieving her goal, but she also knew that it was all built on nothing. And what would that combination of fear and excitement be like to live with for a person every single day? What what would the achieving the goal look like? For, I mean, given that it was built on nothing, was was there an end game? I mean, on some level, there was there doesn't seem to have been any good outcome for her like even if John Carreyou had never come along like ultimately the tests didn't work this company was destined to implode yes on some level but I can also see a world where they managed to go public and they became a going concern because they suddenly got access to the public markets and somehow found a way to just trudge along. I mean, if you look at the number of companies that are not fully living up to the standard that they say that they could live up to, but they're publicly traded and they have access to a re relatively steady flow of capital, they're surviving. Despite the fact that they're built, I, I can't say on fraud because they haven't been, they, they, they haven't been called out for that. They haven't been accused of that, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't know where it would have ended up. I, I think the reality, when when you look I feel, at- I feel the, like I do. Like, I feel like the <laughs> FDA would have shut them down pretty quickly, whether they were public or not, because- the, Well, the yeah. FDA could have t pulled tests, absolutely. But the FDA pulling tests doesn't mean that the FDA shuts you down. 
They could have pivoted to something else. They could have been like, this pin thing is not working out. We're just going to be a regular blood testing company or sold to someone else. Or That's the thing. I think part of the story is that the access to capital was the goal. Because as long as you have access to people who are willing to give you money, you can keep going forward. And her, in her mind, if she could go until infinity, eventually there would be a solution. And and there are other companies that are are trying uh, to do some of the things that she was trying to do. That doesn't mean that they will achieve those things. And it also doesn't. By the way, none of this is to suggest that she she did right or anything like that. Why did she talk to Amy Chozik? And what did you make of that article? That's the New York Times uh, feature story. Yeah. I don't know why either she chose to speak with her or vice versa. I think... (laughs) I mean, if you're Amy Chozik, it's clear why you take that call and you do that. Right. This woman's about to get sentenced to prison. She has a baby and is... Was she pregnant also? I, can't. I think she, she had like a two-month-old baby. She just had her baby. She just had her baby. She just had her baby. Yeah, you definitely and, want and, to talk to her if and, you're a reporter. And, but on the other side, like as as a friend of mine said, like you, you are insane when you have a two-month-old newborn in the house. The last thing you want to do is invite a New York Times reporter into your house and spend <laughs> like days with her. Right. Away. It was embedded too. I yeah. mean, I, 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 I obviously I, look. I think from Elizabeth Holmes' standpoint. It was great PR, or it was intended to be great PR. It was intended to make her sympathetic and change the narrative about her. An interview like that with somebody who's been convicted of lying. They've been convicted of lying. (laughs) So outside of getting a new smoking gun or some new piece of information about the crime itself— There's not a lot. I I get why people read it. I understand why audiences want it, and I understand why journalists want it. But I often ask myself, if I was sitting across from her right now, what could I, what objective, what outcome could I possibly achieve? Are there things you still want to know? What would you ask her? (sighs) I, I don't know that there's any question that I could ask her because I don't know that there's any answer that would live up to what I'm hoping to achieve, which is the truth. Mm. And I, my objective is to get to the truth, to get to the heart of the story, to make complicated ideas clearer, uh, more understandable for my audience, for our audience, to help keep people from getting taken advantage of by charlatans. And once you open that door, it's really complicated. So tell me about the, the the legal victims here, because as you said, she was found not guilty of victimizing, um, you know, the people who wound up thinking they had cancer or AIDS or, you know, the, the, the genuinely terrible outcomes. Um, she was legally guilty of defrauding Betsy DeVos and Rupert Murdoch out of millions of dollars and, like, they're certainly not sort of sympathetic victims in any real way. So where is is it just the dollar amount that even though these people were more than capable of losing that kind of money and not missing it, like just because the number of dollars was so great, she had to go to prison for 11 years? 
that's basically it. I mean, you didn't hear from Rupert Murdoch was not one of the witnesses at trial. They were smaller investors who took the stand, but they were generally high net worth investors. I spoke to a handful of people who put money in who were not. This is why I say if the company had gone public, maybe via a SPAC or something like that, and all the investors were ultimately made whole, how would this story be framed differently? Because if she was found guilty, and she was, she was found guilty purely on the crimes against investors, and a lot of those investors brought their own civil suits in order to recover the money that they lost. If it purely was about the FDA and Walgreens, the the product would no longer be on store shelves, but would there just be new iterations of it happening somewhere in a laboratory somewhere and just being kept out of the way of real people, but still being worked on. Still, I I mean, potentially being developed. Again, not to suggest on any level that it should have gone down that way. I'm just playing out what I see happening in other ways where companies, as long as you can get to that point where you have access to the public market capital, then you don't need some of the things that that the private companies do to keep keep surviving. Yeah, it seems like when it became clear that the tests weren't really working, Theranos had some of the Walgreens places just do regular blood draws. That's right, exactly. So it seems like they could have, you know, if, if they had, did have access to public markets, they could have pivoted to just being a regular lab testing company, and that would not have been nearly as exciting, but it would have probably saved them all of this well, and, and that's kind of what they were trying to do because they were doing all of these Venus draws inside of Walgreens and they would do Venus draws even with their board members all the time. So they were attempting to pivot while still selling this dream that they had managed to do the tiny little draw from two pricks of blood from your finger. The reason she got 11 years really isn't about how much money was at stake. It's more about it's like when O.J. Simpson got sent to jail, not for murder, but for this other thing he did. But we all knew that he was getting sent to jail for a really long time because of the murder. It's yes, just like the attention. Whatever you can get this woman on, we're going to send her to jail because everyone's really mad at her. That's right. I agree with that. <laughs> also, don't you think it's it's also a matter of the brazenness of the fraud? You know, the fact that she falsified documents, you know, we have her lying in, in so many instances. Yeah, I think the amount of attention that she was getting worked to her benefit at a time, and then it worked to her disadvantage. There was so much attention on her, which is what made people potentially more skeptical of her. And it's also why people like Erica Chung, who was one of the whistleblowers in this, who spoke to us, why they came forward, because they had this view of this woman as uh, you know, not as somebody who had this audacious goal and was worthy and a leader. And then when they got inside and saw the reality of it and saw how different that reality was from the one being portrayed to the public, and also the fact that this technology was now being put into the hands of of people, of real people and having real impact, they felt like they had to come forward. And Erica Chung had nothing. She didn't have a family that was going to support her. She didn't have a pedigree uh, that was that she could fall back on. And it was her first job out of college. So she was incredibly brave to come forward and and potentially face and and did initially face the wrath of Elizabeth Holmes and 
uh, her lawyers and went through her own scary experiences that she's talked about. I think another reason she got such a long sentence, and I, it does seem really crazy long to me. I mean, I mean, sentences in America are all crazy long. We, we, we just live in this crazy castle True, state fair. where everyone gets crazy right. sentences. Well, and, but everything. that's the thing. There's, there's guidelines, and the guidelines say exactly what the sentence can be. And the guidelines were – it was right in the middle of where the guidelines are for her crime. Same thing for Sonny Balwani. The fact that she was a woman, people get really super angry, extra mad when women don't do what they're supposed to do or they fall off their pedestal. I think they get a harsher, a harsher run for it, typically. I, I, I really th- do. I don't think she's, I mean, I, you know, she's clearly not being. I'm not saying I don't agree. Treated she, more harshly than, than Balwani, right? Which is the true. obvious, you know, non-woman who did exactly the same thing. That's true, but I still think the reason people are so upset with her is because, partly because she was a woman. It's also partly because um, of the hype. I wanted to just touch on this a little bit. There was the famous ink cover calling her the next Steve Jobs. There was the glowing kennel letter profile in The New Yorker. Um, that She had this, you know, almost too good to check narrative that was just catnip to journalists and to what degree are sort of we as a profession guilty of providing the very hype that was necessary for her to perpetuate the fraud part of why i was interested in covering this in the first place is the the look inside of what it is that we do and how to be the best journalist that I can be and hopefully that people around me can be. And I think one of the things I have given thought to is on that question about female, I think that is part of the story, but the audacious goal is the other part of it. And we as human beings want to champion people with audacious goals who are coming from, in quotation marks, the right place. And I think that, as a journalist, is one of the biggest lessons, that even people who have the best objectives still need to answer the toughest questions. And my job, whether I'm sitting across from somebody that I believe in and I agree with or somebody I completely disagree with, my job is to ask them tough questions and continue to ask those questions regardless. I just want to bring up her voice. Oh, yeah. Can, mm. we talk, can we talk about the voice? I really want to get into it. No, but I don't know what <laughs> even the question is, but I guess the voice went away. And what do you make? I mean, according to this piece in New York Times that Amy Chosick wrote, she just talks in a higher register now. And when she was in charge of Theranos, we all know she had that famous voice. I mean, what do you think happened there? Well, you know. For me, I went back and listened to a lot of tapes of her. I obviously watched every interview she did, and I watched the deposition tapes. And I noticed just from, and and there was an NPR interview she even had done years Mm -hmm. and years before she became so, um, so pervasive everywhere. And so her her voice did change over that time. And I look, her voice is one of the things that people talk about. And I think this story in addition to being something with incredibly high stakes where everybody can imagine themselves going to get a blood test and the cast of characters who were in her orbit, who surrounded her, 
were fascinating, but she herself is a fascinating character. And I do think that's part of why people were drawn to her story, both on the up and the down of the story. Um, whether, I, I honestly, I have, I have no idea why <laughs> she's making the choices. I saw a theory somewhere, and this sort of makes sense to me, that maybe somewhere along the line, she got some media training and was told, and I read something similar to this in, a, in an interview about Ivanka Trump, that for women, if your voice is a little bit lower and you talk slower, people think you're more serious. So you know how when Ivanka's interviewed, she also does that kind of mm -hmm. low, breathy thing. But when she's speaking on the fly, she doesn't. You, you know who else did it? Is Margaret Thatcher. Famously. <laughs> she, she entered politics with like a relatively high re registered voice. And then she brought it down, started talking more slowly. And people were like, oh, Margaret. I think that happens unconsciously a little bit because I find if I'm really deeply explaining something, I will go down a little bit to talk about it. If I'm <laughs> well, I, I think careful. also, and and again, this was this was part of her attorney's case at trial was this idea that you know they kept pounding this idea of her being a 19 year old founder. The crimes that that she committed, that she's now been charged for and convicted of, those didn't occur until years later when she was in her 20s, but still young for her age, uh, for, for, for the work that she was doing, for the rooms that she was in. And so you, you could, one could argue that part of this entire manifestation was, um, you know, trying to make herself be taken seriously by lots of different people. And when you go through some of the things that came out at trial, Sonny Belwani, uh, allegedly had written to her and talked to her about her presentations. And he had even chastised her at times for being too like giddy and girl-like in meetings. So she was mm -hmm. also getting, at least now based on the record that we've seen and, and the allegations that she presented at trial, she was getting that feedback as well from Sonny Belwadi. But I do want to just finish, Rebecca, by asking you, you've spent an inordinate amount of time researching this woman, reporting on her, talking to people around her, going to the trial. How, like on a scale of like one to evil, like where does she stand? Like is she is she a bad criminal? Is she like sympathetic and not so? Like we at one point we were talking about having an episode about Martha Stewart, who's like a sympathetic criminal. She you know she went to jail, she did a bad thing, but like no one really thinks that she's a criminal, you know. Where where would you place um, Elizabeth Holmes, you know, in the context of someone like, say, Bernie Madoff? Zero to Madoff. Zero to Madoff. You know, you know, I'm a journalist, and you know, I can't answer that question. Well, but I mean, what, I, what I can we're say, we're all journalists. We just like let it all hang out. On I the understand, show. but here's what <laughs> I'll say. Just a ranking. This is this is what I uh, this is what I want. I I will say, and it's it's what I honestly think a lot about, and I've, I've thought a lot about this throughout covering her. Well, while she's this fascinating person and she has children and you, I feel for those children um, being brought into this world. And, and by the way, being brought into this world with the knowledge that there was a lawsuit and with the knowledge that there would be a sentencing based on an outcome of a trial, the people who guide me and in my thinking are all the people who spent time talking to me and to us for our podcast, Erica Chung, who 
put her life at risk in at least financially, at least her career and providing for her own family. Um, the, the people who got the tests and were misinformed. I, you know, a woman named Sherry Ackard who thought she had breast cancer and her breast cancer had returned. People who thought they had diabetes, people who thought they had AIDS when they didn't. A woman who thought she had miscarried when she hadn't. For those people, the consequences of inaccurate blood tests were very real and they were not throwaway. And while they are not the charges on which she was convicted and they are not the reason per se that she is in jail, their lives have been completely changed because of it. And while I can't as a journalist answer your question, I think that each of those people who actually had everyday interactions with her would feel very strongly that justice needed to be served here, that she needed to go to jail. I, I'm I'm going to come out <laughs> and say, like, I think I I think Rebecca has persuaded me, and I was probably persuaded beforehand anyway, that this is worse than Madoff. That you know these are this is medicine we're talking about. This is health we're talking about. That it must be held to a higher standard than finance. Finance is a place where people with money invest money and they lose money and things go up and things go down and you're taking financial risks. And it's, it's just a, you know, it's a different realm than health and medicine, which is extraordinarily carefully regulated and controlled because so many issues of literal life and death are at stake. And to blunder recklessly into that space in and of itself would be unconscionable, but to knowingly lie and defraud in that space and to knowingly run the risk of causing exactly the kind of outcomes that we're talking about in terms of people thinking they have breast cancer or AIDS or whatever is, is just, you, you can't do that with any kind of working moral compass. I just don't see how that's possible. Yeah. Did anyone well, get a false negative? Every example is like yes. she thought, she, yes, they did get There false were also negative. false negatives. And, and one other thing I would just say to what you just said, Felix, is the idea of trust inside of a system. And that if there isn't trust inside a system that is as important as our health, it's incredibly problematic. As we, yes, as we know, having lived through this. Yes. Whole, yeah. <laughs> Pandy. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on this show. It's been wonderful having you and explaining everything. Thanks very much to Patrick Fort for producing, to Ben Richmond for doing all of the, pressing all of the buttons and making everything sound amazing. We'll be back on Saturday with another Slate Money. <laughs>